So we'll be reading uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 through 14, the very end of 2 Corinthians. And in honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read this passage? Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? I hope you find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not, not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed." For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up, not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we have come to the conclusion of Paul's letters to the Corinthians. In the first seven chapters, Paul defended his ministry both to his friends, those who were receptive to him and what he was teaching, and to those who had turned against him. He also described for them and for the Christian church the future ministry of the new covenant in Christ. In chapters eight and nine, he described what that meant for those who were repentant, the results of that repentance and restoration. Then in the final four chapters, he warned them, the unrepentant, but he ended on a note um, of hope that, and a, and a very unique benediction that I just read, but we'll talk about that shortly. So verse five and six again, examine yourselves, see whether you are in the faith, Test yourselves, or you do not realize this about yourselves, that Christ is in you? Unless indeed you may fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. So um, if you've joined us, this is the kind of the conclusion of this battle that he's had with these antagonists that were deriding Paul and trying to take the authority away from Paul while he was away at ministering to other areas, trying to become the leaders of the church, probably mostly for financial gain. And so Paul's been countering them throughout this letter. And some of their accusations were, well, he's not very, he's kind of ugly little guy, he's not very eloquent. Uh, you know, actually there's a description of him in the second century that he was short and he had a big nose and kind of was hunched over. So not a very flattering image. And they played on that, that he wasn't powerful. And even that he failed to follow through 
on what he had promised because he said, when I come again, I'll spend this time with you. But when he came again, he found all this contention and he decided to step away and let the Holy Spirit work on them um, and then return later on after he had written this letter. So now Paul turns it around. They were examining him. They were trying to find ways to criticize and put him down. But Paul turns it around now and asks them to examine themselves. He's not talking about examining the false teachers that he called super apostles. He's not saying examine those guys who are in contention with me. But he's saying all of you examine yourselves to see if Christ is in you. The test that they were to apply to themselves was whether or not Christ was in them. He alone is the standard for what we should be like. You know, and some people say, well, I, I'm, the, I'm pretty good. I should go to heaven. I, I, I try to be kind to everybody, and I'm better than, you know, and they'll name some serial killer or some evil dictator or something. And I say, but the standard isn't that guy. It's Jesus Christ. He's the standard. Are you living at that level? And we all say, uh, sorry, <laughs> I'm not there. I can't walk on water. No nail holes here. Okay. Because he's the standard and we all fall short of that standard. Our whole goal is to be more like him. Faith in this sense, whether we're in the faith, is the Christian faith. Has Christ redeemed us? Has he taken up residence in our hearts? D.A. Carson points out, if the Corinthians declare they've failed the test, then doubtless Paul will be humiliated. But in the case, the Corinthians are in no position to point the finger at anyone if they failed. If, on the other hand, they feel they've passed the test, then since Paul did all the initial evangelization among them, he's the last person they're in a position to condemn. So how do we know if we are truly Christian? We have to be in Christ and he in us. That's what Paul described in this letter in, in chapter 5, 17, about becoming a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It's to have repented of our old nature and our old life and allow Christ to live in and through us. It is to have repented and received that forgiveness that he offers. It's the beginning of this process of sanctification, of letting the Holy Spirit mold us into the image of Christ and let the word renew our minds. And, you know, I, I've lived in different cultures, and it's amazing how, to me, how different cultures have totally different concepts of, of, of what should be. And one thing I learned from that is we grow up in a culture and that culture determines so much of how we think and what we feel is right and what is wrong and what's good. But the Bible is cross-cultural. It is worldwide. It is for every culture and it's for every time. It's unique in that way that no matter when people lived 
or no matter what world culture they grew up in, the word of God is applicable and teaches them the culture of heaven, the culture of God, the mindset of God. As is so often the case, Paul's pulling from the Old Testament passages when he says, examine yourselves, especially the psalmist who wrote Psalm 139, 23 and 24, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there is any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This idea of examining yourself uh, is all throughout the scripture. The prophets also pled with Israel in the same way. Examine yourselves. Paul encouraged them to examine themselves by taking, when they were taking communion. We talked about that just a minute ago. This is because God knows how deceitful the heart of man can be. Sometimes we allow ourselves to cling to an idea that justifies sin because we don't want to give it up. We can come up with our own ideas about truth, especially if we're not in God's word and in fellowship. Self-examination is when we let the word of God search our hearts as we read it. In fellowship, others who've been in Christ and matured challenge our unbiblical ideas that we come up with. It's part of that wonderful process of sanctification. It's maturing in Christ but it's part, it's what we need to grow. If we avoid the word and fellowship, we stagnate and we start to justify more and compromise more. We can come up with a God that we're more comfortable with, which is really making ourselves our own God. Paul challenges us with his zeal to realize we might not spiritually be where we think we are, we may be failing the test. In our culture, to say that sounds rude when we would... Well, wait a second. Okay. That sounds kind of rude. If someone comes up to you and says, you better examine yourself. Are you really a Christian? we'd be offended. But it's really a loving statement because if you understand human nature and the need to constantly check yourself, you realize it's, it can be a statement out of love to keep us moving forward. Our culture, you know, it wants everybody to feel comfortable with their sin, right? I mean, that's the big push today. If whatever the sin is, you should feel comfortable. That's you. Do your thing, right? If anyone mentions sin, the common reaction is one of justification or you're judgmental. And the world's favorite verse, it's Matthew 7, 1. Do not judge, right? They have no idea that Jesus commanded us to not judge by outward appearances, but to judge with right judgment. John 7, 24. And that means according to God's word, according to God's standard. Paul's asking them and us to judge ourselves just because you were moved by the spirit and felt God touch your heart doesn't mean that you're his. 
Are you in Christ and is he in you? Recognition of our sinfulness is the first step. And unless we see our need for forgiveness, we won't ask for it. Unless we ask, we won't receive that forgiveness that we need. Forgiveness makes way for God to live in us. When he takes up residence, then we find there's a bigger battle going on within us. True believers desire what is right and what is pure while recognizing the powerful force of sin in their nature that's still at work because we're not yet glorified. When we surrender to Jesus, we begin to learn to crucify the old desires. That's what Jesus meant when he said, take up your cross and follow me. And God starts to fill our hearts with new desires, love for God, for our fellow believers, for the lost, for God's word. But I would ask you to examine yourself one step further. Are you growing in Christ? Have you backed off from your passion and commitment to him? Can you say you're closer to Christ today than you've ever been before? If we've experienced the love of God and his faithfulness to us, we should desire to draw closer to him every day until we are finally home. And he finishes the work in us. Paul called it pressing toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Always pressing a little further, going further. How can Paul be so confrontational? Well, it's because he loves them. He's the one who founded the church. He saw most of them come to Christ. He saw the transformation in their lives. And he knows his ancestors came out of Egypt and yet they died in the wilderness. They saw miracles, just like the Corinthians saw the signs and wonders that were done by the Apostle Paul, and yet they were still drawn to those eloquent false teachers. He is pleading as a father pleads with his children who've been listening to those who lead them astray. You know how some of you are parents, and you know your kids got around other kids that were a bad influence, and you're trying with all your heart to explain to them that it's the wrong direction to go, that it'll be hurtful. That's how God pleads with us. Verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. So Paul and his team prays for the Corinthians to do the right thing, even if in the process Paul has failed or seems to have failed. Paul wasn't concerned about what they thought about him as long as they were following the true gospel. His desire was for their spiritual maturity as, and that desire is the new nature in us, spiritual maturity. We know it's not about us, it's about Jesus in seeing others follow him. It doesn't matter if in the process we're looked down on. We live to please our Savior, not man. Verse 8, 
For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Jesus is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the light. And he is the word incarnate. Paul lived to please him. He walked in the spirit. Either the false teachers were teaching what was true or Paul was. It was one or the other because they contradicted each other. And Paul makes a bold declaration that he and his team can only do what is for the truth. Verse 9, for we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. So now Paul's playing with the vocabulary of the false teacher's accusations that Paul was weak. In the previous passage, Paul embraced the claim of weakness. The Holy Spirit had spoken to his heart and told him that when he was weak, the power of Christ was perfected in him. He uses weakness and strength as words that are bound together. If the Corinthians are restored to the pure gospel, then they'll be strong in Christ too. Here's the shepherd's heart that we've seen in Paul throughout these two letters. He wrote of his daily anxiety for all the churches. They're like teenagers, easily influenced and inexperienced at facing the cunning of Satan. He longs to see what he stated elsewhere as Christ formed in them. He's indignant when someone is made to fall. Even if they've slandered him and they're ungrateful for all the sacrifices he made for them, he prays for their restoration. That's because he's willing to share the heart of Jesus for them. Verse 10, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up, not for tearing down. So Paul tells them in this verse the whole reason for writing this letter. He doesn't want to come and have to discipline them. He's praying this letter will open their eyes to how they've been led astray so that they repent and are restored. How, how, how much better it would be to come and teach them for upbuilding them by teaching rather than to spend the time disciplining them. Perhaps even sending some of those people out of fellowship. It kind of reminds me of an event that happened in the Old Testament. Um, this is in uh, 1 Samuel 16. You know, Samuel uh, was one of the first of the a line of prophets, and uh, he was a pretty powerful prophet. He came to Bethlehem, and the elders came out of the town. They heard he was coming. They came out of the town and, and were shaking when they asked him, Have you come in peace? <laughs> well, we remember um, when Elijah faced the prophets of Baal. That was pretty powerful. If the false teachers commanded obedience by their harsh behavior and thought Paul was weak, they'd never seen the Lord exercise discipline through Paul. And Paul was hoping that he wouldn't have to do that, that this letter would bring the desired results so that wouldn't be necessary. 
Today, the warning stands over the church, and especially those who have transmitted the present cultural values into the church, so that the church is little more than a Christianized version of the modern culture. The warning stands where leadership is built on the cult of personality, where image is everything. The war warning looms where worship is a showtime, where preaching is entertainment, where God's word is muzzled and the pulpit panders to itching ears. The warning echoes where we are the, fo we are the focus of worship, our feelings, our comfort, our health, our wealth, where super apostles are preferred over the Apostle Paul. 11, finally, brothers, rejoice. Now that sounds strange coming after all this warning and, you know, you know, look out, here I come kind of message. But it ends with this note of optimism. Brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. So Paul ends the letter with five brief commands. The first was to rejoice. That gives the impression that tr Paul truly believed the congregation was going to heed this letter. If they're restored to the true gospel, that would indeed be a reason for rejoicing. When we're operating in the flesh, we see everything in a negative way. But when we walk in the spirit, we're full of praise and rejoicing for we become aware of God's goodness in our lives and we give thanks in everything. Joy is part of the legacy of, that the Lord Jesus left to his followers. These things, Jesus said, these things have I spoken to you, he told the apostles gathered in the upper room, so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And he promised them, I'll see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy away from you. He asked the Father that his followers may have his joy made full in themselves, Jesus' own joy. Scripture declares believers' joy as great, abundant, overflowing, animated, inexpressible, and full of awe. Then Paul says, aim for restoration. Paul didn't want the false teachers to be excommunicated. He wanted to see them drop that behavior, that ungodly fruit of the flesh kind of behavior that they had adopted and humble themselves and repent and be restored. They were obviously people with leadership potential. If they were humbled and operated in the spirit, they could be useful for the kingdom of God. The third was comfort one another. After some of the harsh rebukes and Paul's eye-opening explanations of how they'd gone astray, they would need to comfort one another. After repentance, there's often the need for comfort. We know the enemy of our soul likes to condemn us so that even if we know we're forgiven, we feel incapable of making a right decision. Kent Hughes calls this comfort the currency of concord and unity, comforting one another. Agree with one another. 
That's, of course, about the essentials of our faith. They were to agree about the truth that Paul taught them as Jesus' apostle. That's not just to agree to get along with one another, but to embrace the truth that they had received and stand on that truth, no matter how impressive any visiting speaker might be. Live in peace. The aim within the church family should always be to live in peace. Again, we may not agree on minor issues, but our love for the Lord Jesus and our respect for his word is what binds us all together. If we want the presence of the God of love and peace, we must strive for peace among ourselves. Forgiveness and patience are essential for living together in peace. Each of these five admonitions is written in a tense that implies from this time forward. We are to continue to rejoice. We are to always aim for unity. We should always comfort one another and agree with one another. And we are to always forever live together in peace. These things are not natural for the fallen nature of man but they are the characteristics of those who are new creations in Christ. Verse 13, all the saints greet you. The church in Ephesus sent their greetings to the Corinthians. This reminded the Corinthians that they were part of a much larger body of believers. There was a standard of behavior in the early church, and they were part of that and to uphold that standard. The Corinthians needed to see that they were part of something greater than their local church and live that example. And we need to do that as well. And finally, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the only Trinitarian benediction in all of Paul's letters. Now, he's not trying to give us a theological explanation of the Trinity. The triune God is simply the air that Paul breathes. As seen in other references to the Trinity in his writing. The grace of Jesus. How can we begin to describe grace piled upon grace that we are blessed with in Christ? He set aside his glory in heaven to enter this fallen world, to live for 33 years among us, putting up with our stubbornness and our outright hostility, offering his body and blood, and to face the separation from God so that we might be made new and be his forever. He came to reverse the curse that we all deserve, and he extends that grace to us daily and to the lost world around us daily. And for all who are in him, his grace works all things together for our good. What a savior. And the love of God, that is what sent him, the, God sent his only begotten son in that love. Romans 5.8 says, God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And this is the love not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, 
nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. If you're in Christ, you have the continuous, faithful counsel of the Holy Spirit, warning you when you need it, comforting you when you need it, and always ready to direct you when you ask. He is a friend that is closer than a brother. Fellowship with the Holy Spirit is fellowship with the Father and the Son. As I thought about our journey through Second Letter to the Corinthians, I think what stood out to me was the heart of the Apostle Paul for the Corinthians. What an example he was for pastors throughout the generations. You know, the natural man, if someone a church they founded turned against them and was saying bad things about them, they, the natural man would just write them off. How dare they? After all, I've sacrificed for them. But in Paul was the heart of Jesus, full of grace and compassion, even for those who caused the church to doubt his authority. He loved them as well. He wanted their restoration, restoration for all, grace for all, comfort for all. His desire was to see them again in unity. The message of the letter for our day is to cling to the gospel truth. Know the scriptures so that when someone comes along with a new revelation, a slick delivery, very impressive kind of people, you will know the truth from error. When a person tries to weave modern culture in and that which is contrary to scripture, you'll know to take a stand. It's important for us to remember the words of Jesus. For what is, is, what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. If you're in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, you will know error from truth. You will discern that something is amiss. And when you see a pastor who's there for personal gain or adulation, rather than service out of love for the Lord and his people, you will know there's a problem. And if that person attacks other pastors to exalt themselves, remember this letter. The secondary message is that God uses the weak, that his power is perfected in weakness. We consider Paul such a great apostle, but he knew his own weaknesses. And Jesus added to them that thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited. And this gives a whole different attitude to our own weaknesses or afflictions. Paul's pre presentation may not have been as eloquent as others, but it was full of truth and the power of the Holy Spirit. God delights in using broken vessels like us and praise God for the demonstration of his mercy and grace. Amen? Amen. Jill, would you lead us in a closing song? And then I'll give this benediction. <laughs>